Hello and welcome to Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are intrigued by the spiritual dimension to life. I'm Rosie Dawson. On a big screen near you now is the story of Nicholas Winton, a British stockbroker and humanitarian who rescued 669 Czech children from certain death in Nazi extermination camps. For 40 years, Winton kept his role in kinder transport private. It wasn't until 1988 that the public came to learn of it through the BBC's That's Life programme, hosted by Esther Ranson. In the film One Life, Anthony Hopkins plays the older Nicholas Winton as he only gradually comes to understand the enormity of what he achieved. The film will prompt many questions about the nature of good and evil, about what motivates people to acts of courage, what leads others to remain as bystanders. Nicholas Winton died in 2015 at the age of 106 and joined by three guests to reflect on his story and ask what lessons it might have for us in 2024. Rabbi Jonathan Remain is director of Maidenhead Synagogue in Berkshire, where Winton lived most of his life. They knew each other well. Lord Alf Dobbs, former MP and now Labour peer, is one of the children rescued by Nicholas Winton. His political commitments since have focused on the welfare of refugees. He was the chair of Refugee Council for many years and has particularly been concerned with unaccompanied children caught up in war. He also knew Nicky Winton. And Sue Butler is the joint CEO of Welcome Churches, a network of churches founded in 2018 and committed to welcoming refugees and asylum seekers. Um, Welcome to you all. Thank you for being with us. Need to hear a little bit more about Winton's story. And I wondered, Jonathan, very briefly, could you just fill in a little bit of biographical detail about him? Initially, he had a very comfortable life. He was born in 1909 in London. His parents, Rudolf and Barbara Wertheim, were German Jews who'd come here a few years earlier. So actually, his original name was Nicholas Wertheim, and then he got changed later. Uh, His parents were very anglicised, very assimilated, and they wanted him to be too. So they baptised him, they sent him to an English public school, Stowe, and uh, he was quite sporty. He was very good at fencing, and had it not been for the war, he might have represented Britain in the Olympics. Uh, He was also a keen skier and went abroad quite regularly regularly, which may seem quite common now, but was actually only for the wealthier classes in those days. And he was politically engaged. He was a good friend of Anurin Bevan, a keen socialist. He had a lot of influential friends in the Labour Party, and he was watching in 1938 with alarm uh, what Hitler was doing in Europe, including his acquisition of the Sudetenland, part of Czechoslovakia, in, in September 38. And a friend basically called him up and said, don't go on the skiing trip we planned with a bunch of schoolboys. Come to Czechoslovakia, see what's happening. I need your help. And he went to Czechoslovakia and saw that there were children there who needed to get to a place of safety. Alf, you were one of those children. Just tell me, you were six years old in 1938, 39? yes. Tell me your memories of being in Prague and indeed of leaving Prague. I remember when the Germans occupied Prague in March 1939. I think there'd been some tension beforehand, but as a six-year-old, I probably didn't understand that. My father was Jewish, my mother wasn't. My father left immediately. He told his cousins that if the Nazis come, he's getting out. And uh, his cousins said they'll take a chance. And tragically, in 1942, the Gestapo took them to Auschwitz. And my father left. Uh, Meantime, at school, we had to tear a picture of the Czech president out of our school books and stick in a picture of Hitler. There were German soldiers everywhere. And my mother tried to leave and was refused permission. So she got me on a kinder transport. How she did that, I don't know. But there it was. She saw me off on the train 
I can still see the station, the soldiers with swastikas on their arms, and off the train went. And I was one of the youngest, and I don't think I knew anybody on the train. And the train left Prague, and that was the beginning of my journey to England. And you were met by your father... I was very lucky. Some of them didn't have a parent waiting for them. They had foster family. So I was very lucky. My father met me at Liverpool Street Station. And then at the last minute, my mother managed to get out. She arrived in London on the 31st of August. And you remember the war started with Germany's attack on Poland on the 1st of September. So that was fine. Then a few months later, my father died. So it was my mum and me. But I had a parent, which is more than some of them had. And on the 1st of September, the 8th train from Prague was due to leave and the Nazis didn't let it go and the children on that train, about 250 of them, we assume they all died in terrorists in um, concentration camp or Auschwitz. But seven other trains had arrived. What was Nicky Winton's role, Jonathan, in organising that Czech kinder transport? He spent a little time in Prague and then came back to London and most of the activities were done in London by him. He needed to do a lot of complicated bureaucracy, get entry permits. He had to get sponsors. Each child had to be sponsored for £50, which was roughly about £2,500 in today's money. So it was a lot of money. And um, he also had to get foster parents, and not just for a year or two, but to guarantee to look after those children until they were 17. And he had to persuade the Home Office of the merit of this plan. And and some people thought he wouldn't be able to do that. Yes, no, he was very persistent. Uh, That was one of his uh, characteristics, resilience and stamina. And once he had an idea in mind, he went for it. And meanwhile, in Czechoslovakia, Nicholas Winton was back in London. In Czechoslovakia, there are people at that end of things processing the children... And, yes, and so there were a whole team. It wasn't just Nicky, it was also Martin Blake, Owen Chadwick, Trevor Tragic. It was a team effort, plus his mother, um, who would do a lot of the work and the, deal with the correspondence at her dining table in London. Now, obviously, Alf, you knew that you came on the kinder transport, but you didn't know about Nicholas Winton's role until the That's Life programme in 1988. Until it came out on television, yes. All I knew was I'd come on a kinder transport, as you say. I didn't know about Nicky Winton. And suddenly there was the person who, in UK terms, had personified the kinder transport from Prague. And I got to know him. We became good friends. I used to go to his birthday parties. And on one occasion, when he was 100 or 102, I said, Nicky, how are you? He said, I'm fine from the neck upwards. But the brilliant thing was, he was totally coherent until about 106. At 106, his last birthday while he was alive, he was fading. But before that, he was intellectually sharp, sharp as anything. You weren't in the That's Life studio when Esther Ranson introduced Nicholas Winton to some of the children who came on that transport. But you were watching the programme. Did you think, I've just got to meet this man? Well, it was almost inevitable that I met him. There was another television programme and some, I can't remember exactly when I first met him, but I met him. And then, you know, there were a group of us who'd come out of Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. So we, were, we got to know each other quite well. Um, sadly, today, most of them have faded away because of age and I was one of the youngest. But yes, I got to know Nicky well and occasionally had lunch with him. We even went abroad once and met abroad. And lovely conversationalist, great to talk to passionately interested in politics. He always loved to chat about what was going on. And Jonathan said he knew some of the Labour Party stalwarts of that era. And he'd actually stood as a Labour candidate for Maidenhead Council twice. He didn't win because it's a fairly safe Tory area, but he'd had this passionate conviction in the things he did in life. Jonathan, how was it 40 years before the public came to know about what Nicholas Winton had done? 
He didn't talk about it. it well, seems. apparently what happened was that uh, Greta, well, his wife, was uh, clearing out the attic and she came across a suitcase, opened it up, full of dust, and it was a record of a lot of the children and the documents and she brought it downstairs and unpacked it and asked Nicky what had been happening and then the story came to light and I think she got in touch with one of the TV producers and said, look, this is a wonderful story. We really must shine a light on it. And no one was more surprised than Nicholas himself. And I imagine that, um, Alf, you've seen the film, I imagine that's a really key moment in the film One Life. But Sue, you didn't know Nicholas Winton. I just wonder what your thoughts are as you listen to Jonathan and Alf. Well, I think I probably represent a lot of the listeners and those that will see the film in that I've heard about him and heard about Kinder Transport, but didn't actually meet him personally, as you said. I just love to hear from Jonathan and from Alf, being people that knew Nicholas, what's the combination of ordinary and extraordinary and perhaps even privilege. Well, he would say that there was nothing special. He would say that he did what anybody else would have done. Actually, it's not true because a lot of people didn't. They just walked by, but he did. A lot of people, they see something awful in the world and they say, oh, that's awful, and walk away. And the difference was Nicky didn't walk away. He was immediately impelled to do something and, and that makes him such a special person. Let's just hear a little bit from Nicholas Winton himself. He was talking to Roger Stamp for BBC Radio Berkshire in 2003. I think I'm just an ordinary human being who likes helping other people. I mean, I I, I saw when I was in Prague in 38 what the problem was. And as I believe that nothing which is blatantly impossible can be done, I tried to do it. And what everybody thought was blatantly impossible was to get a permit for the children to come into England. And in fact, that was the least problem. The Home Office made no problems about bringing in the children, provided I could fulfil their conditions. And it was really that nobody before had asked the Home Office whether it could be done. Some people who would go out of their way, as you did, to rescue other human beings would put it down to some kind of religious faith. What's your faith, if you have one? Well, I, I can't give you any opinion on what other people think. I don't think doing good has got anything to do with religion. Do you have a religious faith? No. So it's a very unequivocal answer there from Nicholas Winton. But I'm interested in what does shape people's propensity or willingness to put themselves out to take action on behalf of others. You know, whether there's something in a religious upbringing, in the atmosphere of the home, which means that people are more or less likely to do that. And I just wonder if you might reflect a little bit yourselves, as people who are all engaged in some sort of humanitarian and social action, what it is in your case. And Alf, I mean, I suppose I would say it's obvious, isn't it, why you are so engaged with refugee issues because of your own background and experience? Well, that's only part of it, I think. I believe that the cause of refugees should not depend on the personal background of the advocate of the case, otherwise a very limiting factor. But equally, I'm bound to be more emotionally involved with the issue. And of course, paradoxically, because I came as an unaccompanied child refugee, it's been much harder for the government to criticise unaccompanied child refugees too much because it looks like a personal attack on me. But that's by the by. So I'm much more emotionally involved. I I couldn't help but be more emotionally involved. But I hope that the cause of refugees is still there anyway. Now, you're a patron of the British Humanist Association. So, I mean, like Nicholas Winton, you'd say 
that your action has nothing to do with religion. Does your activism grow out of humanist principles or does your humanism grow out of your activism? Can you reflect well, a bit on that? Well, I had religion pushed at me at schools, so... I've got to be a bit careful about this. I found the way religion was pushed at me in school was a bit unconvincing, frankly. And as soon as I left school, it sort of disappeared. Now, I think humanists are religion, if it's that in quotes, is our belief in our fellow human beings, our belief that we're all in this world together, our belief that we have to help each other and we have to show decency, compassion and a humanitarian spirit. And I think that's fundamental to humanists and it's certainly something that I hope influences me. Sue, as a Christian, you'll have a sort of theological understanding of why you do what you do. But tell me about the personal reasons that you are engaged with action on behalf with refugees. Yes, as you say, it's a combination of my own personal faith. But in my own life, I moved with my husband in my 20s to the Middle East. And we lived in a number of different locations. One particular place where my husband was involved building a hospital was a very small rural town in Oman, very villagey at the time. And I was there as a young mum with a one-year-old. And those ladies in that neighbourhood welcomed me. Using the word very broadly, they all came round to visit me on my first morning, brought food and flasks of coffee checking me out a little bit, but also saying, yeah, we would like you to join in with our neighbourhood. And they, I obviously knew nothing about anything that was important to them. And so they used to call round at my house and said, come on, we're going to visit someone. Come on, bring your little one. And you've been invited here or invited there. They made sure I dressed in the appropriate way. There's a wedding. What have you got to wear? Oh, dear. Um, that kind of thing. Oh, dear, you can't cook either. And they really took me under their wing. And I was... That I mean, in, in biblical terms, I was that stranger that they welcomed. And that did have a big impact on me. And when I came back to the UK in 2016, I was there with all that cultural experience and also had, in the meantime, also become a fluent Arabic speaker. And I met a Syrian family within a week or so of moving back. And I thought, well, I'm going to welcome them. And in fact, reciprocally, they, they welcomed me as well. So they welcomed me back with Middle Eastern hospitality, but I was also at a place where I could see how much that had impacted me, opened doors, helped me assimilate and helped me have a life in somewhere where I was very, very different. An Arabic speaker in 2016, you must have been absolute gold dust. <laughs> and, and Jonathan, obviously the Hebrew scriptures, it's the water you've swum in all your life, That you know the concern for justice of the Hebrew prophets. What else was it about the atmosphere that you grew up in which predisposed you to the sort of work that you've become involved with? Well, of course, it was partly the Jewish upbringing and the Jewish ethics, love your neighbour as yourself, see the spark of God in everyone, and a particular rabbinic saying I used to really enjoy, which was um, look after another person's body and your own soul, not another person's soul and your own body. Uh, but also on top of that, there was my home life and my parents who weren't desperately religious but had this lovely picture on the wall of showing a sort of street urchin with bare feet pushing along a child in a wheelchair. And the caption underneath was, I cried because I had no shoes until I met someone with no feet. And it was that just sense of caring for others that has sort of really been important, and which is why, for instance, I've now got a Ukrainian family with me uh, for at least uh, nine months it's been, because I wanted to step up to the, for my generation to step up and do what they'd done for my mother, who'd also been on the Kinder's transport. Mm -hmm. Could I just say, I agree entirely. I may be a humanist, but I agree with everything you've just said. 
Jonathan, just tell us where your mother came from on the Kindertransport. My mother came from Leipzig. Uh, she was 11 years old when she came here, and thanks to a Quaker family who had looked after her in Devon and later met my father. Right, so we've got half the people in this room who wouldn't be here were it not for the Kindertransport. Yeah. We talked a little bit about what makes people act. What deters people from action? I mean, if we sort of believe that people are basically good people, why do some take action and others close their eyes to a problem? I don't think it's always lack of caring. I think it's sometimes just being overawed by the task Mm. and things just too big for them. And there's a Jewish saying, it may not be your ability to complete the task, but neither should you desist from it. And, of course, Nicky Winton was one of those people who didn't get overawed, and that lovely saying of his, if it's not blatantly impossible, let's find a way of doing it. Sue? Yes, we have, as Welcome Churches, we have 1,200 churches in our network who want to be refugee welcoming and are refugee welcoming. And some of the things I think that people in churches struggle with, sometimes you hear things on the news and you are, like Jonathan said, you, you feel overwhelmed. You're there thinking, what can we do? Sometimes you have misconceptions about what it means to help someone, what it will take, not realising that a very small thing from you can have a deep impact and be a huge help to someone else. Sometimes it's confidence as well. And we find that once we're talking to a church or someone from a church about what it might mean to step forward and to help someone, it might simply be, let's say, to to get your mother and toddler group advert in different languages so that people know that they're going to be welcome and that they can come to it or to use what you already have. But you just need to step forward just with a bit more confidence to do that. So we like to give confidence and give training so that people say, well, I, oh, I could do something. I can do something. I find I've talked to a lot of faith groups. I've been to synagogues, quite a lot of synagogues. I've been to churches. I've been to Muslim events. And I found it very, very rewarding to talk to faith groups because when I talk about refugees, they respond so positively. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Sometimes you just need to be asked, don't you? I mean, if, if Nicholas Winton hadn't had somebody ring him up and say, forget the skiing trip, you know, he wouldn't have got involved with what he did. But something else I want to ask you, Alf, of something that Winton said, and it's about the nature of goodness, I suppose. He says there's a difference between passive goodness and active goodness. The giving of one's time and energy, going out, finding and and helping those in suffering and danger, and not merely leading an exemplary life in this passive way of doing no wrong. So there's something about, you know, what we understand by a good person. Well, I've never hurt anyone in my life. You know, does that make you a good person? Well, I don't think it's enough. I agree entirely with Nicky Winton. I think we should be active in this because there's so many problems in the world. There's so many of our fellow human beings who need some sort of help, support and encouragement. And it comes our way anyway. And so if we're passive, we're simply turning a blind eye to it. I think we have to be active in these things. So what Nicky Winton said was absolutely spot on. And, and also applied to the uh, person he's often compared to, which is Oscar Schindler. And uh, Nicky's often called the British Schindler. Now, Schindler was a womanizer. He was a corrupt businessman. And yet he had this heart of gold that when he saw a need, he responded even at his own cost. Why do you think Nicholas Winton didn't talk about what he'd done? Was he just too busy he was doing very, other things? He was a very modest, unassuming man, and he just genuinely thought, that's what you did, and that's, it's over. He genuinely did not see himself as special and was genuinely surprised by all the fuss and the awards and memorials, and actually quite embarrassed by it. Yeah. I will say this, though, that the more we learnt about it, He did take very modest pride in the fact that there were 669 children, 
plus their children, their grandchildren. So there were several thousand people who owed their lives to him. And I think he took a very modest pride in that. Uh, and we were all, we loved him. You know, we were supportive. We met him. And it was great to meet him and, and have occasions with him. And that was enriching for us. And they, they called themselves Nicky's children. And we can guesstimate that there's probably about 6,000 people alive because he saved those six, six, nine children. And it's a real testimony, isn't it, that you don't know the consequences of what you're doing and that, you know, the goodness and the impact of what people do unfolds over many years. And I imagine, not having seen the film yet, but I imagine Anthony Hopkins, he's got that wonderful, bewildered face, hasn't he, as he sort of, you know, thinks, oh, gosh, yeah, oh, God, I did that. I mean, you've seen the film, Alf. Do you I've, get, I've seen get the that? film twice. And I have to say, uh, when I saw it, and Anthony Hopkins was there as, when he was a, the older version oh. of him. And I thought, this is uncanny. Can it be Nicky Winton on the film? It was so good. And it was so almost unbelievable that Anthony Hopkins did it so well. So that was Nicky, absolutely, as I remember him. And I think many people, too, that are involved with activism or, let's say, helping out with refugees and people seeking asylum, just see it as life. It's just life. It's not something special that we're doing or, or that churches are doing or individuals are doing. It's literally just doing the thing that's in front of you. And you don't necessarily think it's anything special. And, and often we have friends and colleagues who are doing similar things. And it, it's just what we're doing. We're hosting a Ukrainian family. Or I went to visit this person this week and just help them fill out a form or help them with some simple thing. And it just feels like that is part of my life. It's not this extra special bit that I'm doing. And maybe it's why he didn't talk about it very much because he then went on to the next thing that presented itself to him. He had a child with Down syndrome. He got involved in Maidenhead Men Cap, I think, Jonathan, and lots of other charitable endeavours that didn't have anything to do with the kinder transplant. Yes, and in fact, the MBE he got initially was for his efforts both on behalf of Men Cap and also the Abbeyfield Homes. So when he saw a need, he went in. Is there a danger in the telling of his story that it gets reduced to an individual? Because he he wasn't acting alone. There were many others cooperating with him. I mean, it's a problem in making a saint or a hero out of somebody who was part of a whole chain of events. Well, I think that's a good point. The trouble is the media tend to invest all this in an individual. Like, you know, I get a lot of comments about campaigning for child refugees and I always say, look, it's not me only. It's a lot of other people who are part of this. I get the publicity because of my background, but a lot of other people put a great deal of effort into it. And the same goes for Nicky Winton, that he was helped by a lot of people. He had to battle with the Home Office a bit. The Czechs were suspicious of him and, and his friends in Prague. And I think he overcame that. But, of course, the way things are told... Nicky Winton is a person who we identify as, as the one who personifies kinder transport coming here. And I think it has to be a collective effort. It has to be something which a lot of people did. And I think that's the way Nicky would have wanted it. Yes, that's true, because there were people, for instance, who did more and put themselves in actual danger in a way that he didn't. Raoul Wallenberg, Oscar Schindler, whereas Nicky was doing it, frankly, in the safety of London. But, you know, heroism can also be in the back room as well as on the front line. And also, I think, actually, for the public story, sometimes it's much easier to identify with an individual, just like it's very hard to identify with the six million, but Anne Frank, that teenager, mm. she represents it all. Yeah, and having a, a hero-type person a- acknowledging all these other people that are involved, I think that does appeal to us. We can start to understand who he was and perhaps find things in his life that appeal to us or that we understand. So that helps us in our journey. It, it can be difficult to look up to someone and think, oh, I could never be like that. But hearing more of someone's life can help us say, well, actually, 
perhaps this bit or that bit I understand or, or I relate to those bits in his life. I'd like to ask you about the opportunity that this film might present us to reflect on the challenges facing us in responding to the various refugee crises today. I mean, Alf, you've been very active in advocating for unaccompanied minors to be able to come to this country from the jungle in Calais and so on. How do you hope people might receive this film with that in mind? Well, first of all, I think it will raise the consciousness of people. People are, public memories are short. And I think a film like this will draw attention to what happened in 1938, 1939. But I hope to also say to people, as Nicky used to say to me in conversation, what about the present day? What about children today? So I hope people will take that short step from the situation then as depicted in the film to the situation today. If people can take that short step, then the film will have really done something very important in alerting public opinion. Yes, he sometimes got a bit cross with people concentrating on what happened 50 years ago (laughs) and ignoring what was happening right on their doorstep immediately. Sue? Of course, we do see a lot on the media, different groups of people coming. We have, in the more recent past, the Afghans being evacuated and placed in bridging hotels. We've had Ukrainians come on the Home for Ukraine scheme. And so there's a growing need all around the country. In the past, people came to claim asylum in the UK and were sent to dispersal towns and cities And churches and individuals in those places had a big role to play in welcoming and supporting them. But now with the Home Office using hotels all around the country, we hear from, let's say, a white middle-class church in rural Berkshire who now have a hotel right up the road from their church and have had initially had an Iranian man walk in and said, please, can I have a Farsi Bible? Which they didn't have, of course. But it led to a lot of people from the hotel getting to know the church community and for them to have an opportunity to welcome them, to support them. And now a lot of them have been moved on somewhere else, but they have had a chance to play a part in that support and that help that they they didn't expect to have. I wonder if if I might just add add a quick thought. I was in Calais. I've played several visits to Calais about a week and a half ago, and the conditions there were absolutely shocking. But the more that people are made aware of what it is these people are enduring and what they've escaped from in their own countries, whether Syria or Sudan or Afghanistan and so on, the more will people locally here in Britain be sympathetic and responsive and do things. And the film does show... In a way, it doesn't show the Holocaust, but it shows the escape from the Nazis and the way the German soldiers were behaving. So I think it helps in that way. I'd like us actually to hear again from Nicholas Winton. Roger Stamp was interviewing him just before Holocaust Memorial Day and asked him for his reflections on it. The only thing I think about Holocaust Day in particular is that it hasn't got an S at the end. The Holocaust now is uh, a word directed directly at the Germans and that we haven't got a word left over to deal with the Russian Holocaust and the Pol Pot Holocaust and uh, the South African Holocaust. I think it's good that Holocausts should be remembered, but that it should Holocaust Day should be connected forever with entirely one country. All that, that Holocaust may be the worst of all. I think it's completely wrong. Jonathan, what's your response to that? 
I agree very much. In fact, I campaigned initially when Holocaust Memorial Day was being proposed that it didn't have that name and it was called Genocide Day instead because there are so many genocides, unfortunately, and that brave cry in 1945, never again, unfortunately has been proved wrong. Uh, There's a remarkable museum in Los Angeles, the Simon Wiesenthal Museum for Tolerance, and there are two doors. On one door it says, enter this door if you're prejudiced, and enter the other one if you're not prejudiced. So being fairly liberal, I went for the not prejudiced door, and you find that it's barred, and a neon light comes in and says, try the other door. We're all prejudiced, um, <laughs> and uh, we all need to be aware of the needs of others. It's much more documented at the moment. I noticed that each of the wars and the genocides and the atrocities are much more in our face now that people are finding English speakers who are able to bring it to us in a way we can understand mm. more. And that should lead us to have more compassion. And we hope that that leads our government to make ways of safety and be involved in either bringing to an end or peacekeeping or providing routes of safety to come to us and continue that legacy here in the UK. There was one crucial difference, I think one has to point out, that the German and Austrian Jews in the 1930s, when they came here, they were very much encouraged to assimilate. They were told to not use German in the streets. They were told to lower their voices because they had accents, and they were asked to learn English as quickly as possible. And it's a different culture now, and therefore maybe there's a different response by the host population. Yeah, well, I remember my mother always said, outside the house, we always talk English, precisely for the reason she said, can I tell you a little story? Some little while ago, I was asked to speak at a school in East London. It was a maintained school. It was all Muslim boys. And the project the school were working on was kinder transport and the Holocaust. And I did my little speech, and about 200, 150 boys. And the first question, what do I say to somebody who denies the Holocaust happened? What a brilliant question from a 14-year-old Muslim boy in East London. I thought the school is doing something really good there. What the filmmakers of One Life didn't know when they were making the film was that Hamas was about to commit the worst atrocity against Jewish people since the Holocaust and that Israel's response would lead to the killing of many thousands of children in Gaza and they didn't know that it would be the end of a second year of war in Ukraine. So I wonder, you know, as we bring this conversation to an end and begin a new year. What you take away into the year from the story of Nicholas Winton, Sue? I think it's a huge encouragement and a call to bravery and courage on the part of ordinary people. And I hope that as listeners watch the film, we're all encouraged to say, what is that step that I can take? And it might be something like Nicholas describing in his own life as something just very ordinary and something that he just stepped forward to do. But I hope that will encourage us to say, what are those things? Might be we're already doing lots of things, but is there something that I'm uniquely made and uniquely put together with my experience that I could step into and I could take that step forward? Jonathan? Yes, he would say, look, ordinary people need to do extraordinary things. He had no religious belief, but he did believe in ethics. And he used to say, if everyone else believed in ethics, we wouldn't have any problems. Yes, well, I I agree with that. I think he would be quite amused at the conversation we're having. I think he'd be quite amused at the film as well. But I think there are lessons there, and Nicky would be the first to say, don't ignore those lessons. We've got to behave in the way we should behave, and that's important. 
Well, thank you very much to all my guests, Lord Alf Dubbs, Sue Butler and Rabbi Jonathan Remain for joining me for this conversation about One Life, which is on general release in the UK now. I'm Rosie Dawson and you've been listening to Deeper Into One Life, the story of Nicholas Winton, a Things Unseen podcast. Things Unseen is brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.